This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The disruption of global trade due to the pandemic seems far from over. Markets are trying to recover from shortages as well as transportation and workforce challenges. That's behind the rental and new car woes and supply chain issues materializing on store shelves. Janice Conan is the Dean of the College of Social Science and Professor of Economics at the University of Hawaii. International trade is her specialty. We explore the marketplace concept of just-in-time and look at other factors impacting product shortages in a world where trade is so intertwined. You know, as I was thinking about this, so many things are happening at one time. So in the... I think global supply chains had become really just-in-time management of goods and products moving. Transportation and such allowed there to be more delivery so that producers didn't have to stockpile their parts, that they expected to get those parts smoothly just in time. Well, a lot of that has changed. And it's changed for a couple of reasons. So on the one side, the supply chain issues that they're not able to get the parts that they need. And some of that is because of weather incidents. We're having more floods. We're having hurricanes. And that is hitting places, you know, even earthquakes, fires. And it's hitting some places where parts are really important. So China, Germany, Japan, and in the U.S., you know, we're having many incidents. Now, some of that's linked to climate change. Some of this is more extreme events happening, and then that impacts the flow of parts. And so that's one impact, weather and challenges with the weather. But that's just one little part. I mean, another part is you look at issues of labor, and with the Delta variant picking up, that's really impacting some countries dramatically, especially in Asia, areas that where there's constraints on travel where workers need to isolate, then suddenly that's causing other issues with parts. And you've been checking in with, I think, some of your counterparts in Asia. You know, what are they saying? Yeah. I mean, are some countries trying to ramp up, let's say, where maybe China's having issues getting product out? Something that is quite striking is usually Japan and Korea are quite efficient with production, but they've been hit with a lack of vaccinations. So for them, responding to some of the supply chain issues have been really difficult. So, for example, Toyota is really having problems getting parts, and there's a shortage of semiconductors. So this is impacting the auto industry in a major way. And that's surprising for us because Japan traditionally had been a model for managing global supply chains. And and I don't know if smaller countries, you know, like, say, Vietnam are ramping up in some areas. Yeah, I do think they're trying to step in where China is having issues and they have their own challenges responding to the pandemic. I saw that the U.S. is trying to be more resilient and boost the technology industry so we don't have to rely on high-tech products that are made beyond our shores so that we have better control over some of that. But that's going to take a while to ramp up, you know, when it comes to producing those computer chips. It is going to take a while. And it's such a change from the direction of global economics where we have become so interdependent on really being able to source products where they are produced most cheaply and the transportation had not been the issue. And now suddenly conditions have changed us so quickly. I mean, 90% of our global supply chain is by sea. 
by ocean. And they're having trouble also getting adequate crews. If you think about the cruise ship issues that we had, right, with the pandemic, you know, they have challenges then with their labor force and having enough crews to manage the global shipping. So that's also making an impact. You know, we, we did see impact. at one point yes. the shipping containers, right, that they, they were having an issue in certain ports with uh, not having enough available to ship things. And I don't yes. know if they've got that sorted out. No. And, you know, it's all of these things, like they're separate things, but they're all coming together to impact. But, you know, I think also it's not to underestimate how the way we are consuming products has really changed dramatically that we as consumers, well, for one, it's an Amazon effect, right? We're expecting to be able to order what we want online for it to come right to our house, especially we want to minimize going to a store now, but we expect products come right to our house. We expect shipping to be free and fast. And that's really difficult to maintain for Amazon to maintain. That requires a labor force that can really provide that kind of service. And, you know, with the pandemic, again, that becomes quite hard. As consumers, what we want to buy has changed a lot, too. It takes some time to gear up that the product that people want to buy is available to to sell because we're staying at home. The kind of food we want to eat is different. Suddenly we want to bake our own bread. We're working from home. So our preferences have changed really quickly. And that's hard for producers. Producers have to adapt to that. You know, we've already seen the headlines warning that the Christmas shopping season could be affected by this supply chain issue. You might have to lower your expectations. You may not get it right away, or you may have to pay a higher price for it, or you may not get it. That's correct, right? So we should start shopping early. So (laughs) this is really true. I I mean, products are in more scarcity, and the delivery times are not as assured as we have come to expect in the past. It's going to be difficult until the workforce returns more to a normal and until we can get a handle on some of the issues with pandemic, it is going to continue to be a challenge with supply chains. We are seeing that weather incidents are happening at more frequency, so we know that that can be disruptive. But I would like to think that businesses are very inventive, that they are going to, you know, they are working actually very hard to try to overcome these supply chain issues. And you have to believe that that innovation will help solve some of these issues, but it may take some time till we work out new ways of producing and getting products to market. And then I think it's also on our side as consumers, you know, how do we value what is produced here locally, what we might be able to change our consumption pattern a bit to live just a little more simply. And historically, I don't know, can we compare this time with any other disruption? We've had disruptions in the past. I mean, I'm remembering the 311 events in the Sendai area of Japan where there was a earthquake and a tsunami and then there was the nuclear incident and that caused massive supply chain issues. So we did see that impact back then. We've seen other cases of impact, but this is different in that it is so global and so systemic. You know, usually in the past, supply chain issues have been for one region or another region, and other parts of the world could step up. 
now it is a different time. So what do you think businesses <laughs> need to prepare for? Well, so in the past, we didn't hold inventory very much. That was seen as expensive because you could just easily order inventory. Now I think businesses are going to have to start planning their inventory, being able to hold more inventory than they've been used to in order to be that reliable supplier. It's just interesting just to see the the domino effect. I imagine then that the uh, like industrial space, warehouse space could then uh, become more valuable. Exactly, exactly. I guess it's for us as consumers, just for us to be aware that there are these supply chain issues and to be more planful in our own expenditure needs, give ourselves time and be thoughtful in terms of preparing your own household or what could be difficulties in getting the goods that you need. You know, I think these things have always gone on, but right now they're magnified because of the pandemic and because weather effects have been much more intensified. That was Denise Conant, professor of economics and dean of the University of Hawaii's College of Social Science. We're learning more about the treatment of COVID-19 patients. There is growing concern about what's needed to keep people alive, whether it's ventilators, oxygen tanks, or highly specialized ECMO machines, which is essentially advanced life support. We heard from Hilton Rathel of the Hawaii Healthcare Association yesterday, who told us there are only about half a dozen of ECMO machines in the state. And this morning, Eric Idoman, director of the ECMO program at Queens Medical Center, talks us through the process of what he calls recovery therapy. The machines won't fix a patient with heart and lung problems, but will buy them time to heal. They're often called the machines of last resort. There's a pump and an oxygenator, and there's some monitoring devices on the pump. The pump kind of acts like the heart. The oxygenator gives you oxygen and takes away carbon dioxide. And then there's monitors on that machine as well, too. So it can measure the flow, the percent oxygen, the hemoglobin and things like that. But if you don't have that machine, then we can put together our machine. So we can, quote-unquote, MacGyver our machine together. Uh, we have the ability to, to make make circuits or make machines if, if we run out of machines. At this point, I can't say that we've necessarily come to a point where we're, we're running out of machines because we can always make the machines. And I think people, even in, in the nurses and and people who don't know a lot about ECMO, they, they say, oh, okay, you know, we I think we only have one machine left or two machines left. So it's like, yes, that's the case. But then at the same time, you know, we, again, we can we can make the machine if we if we need to. We just got to put the components together. It won't be standalone, but we'll have all the components there to, to function like uh, that standalone model. And we are hearing about uh, the concern for the supply of oxygen here in the state. Do these machines use a lot of oxygen? No, actually they, they don't, yeah. It's much less than, uh, probably about the same as a as the ventilator. And the ventilator uses much less oxygen than, than these COVID patients are on. So let me, let me take a step back. So a lot of times people with COVID, they have uh, problems with getting enough oxygen to their body. So before you get put on a ventilator, they put you on what we call high flow 
uh, nasal cannula, which is like uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. There's a high amount of flow of oxygen. And I think, to be honest with you, I think there's so many people on the high flow nasal cannula that those are the people that, that are using up the oxygen. But then the next step after you fail the high flow nasal oxygen is you get put on the ventilator. And then the if you fail the ventilator, then a select few will, will be able to go on to ECMO. But I think the oxygen consumption comes mainly from the high-flow nasal cannula. So it's not the ventilator or not necessarily even the ECMO machine as well, too. What can you tell us about the use of the machines at Queens in the COVID patient care? When a patient gets to a point where the, the ventilator is no longer able to do what it's supposed to do, efficiently, or maybe sometimes the ventilator can even be causing the patient harm because it requires so much pressure to achieve the amount of oxygen level or to lower the amount of carbon dioxide. Then we evaluate that person and we see whether or not they meet, uh, they're a candidate for the ECMO machine. And if they are, then we we put them on. And so far, we've, you know, most of our patients have survived. I think our survival rate is about 80% above national average. And we've probably saved about eight or nine people with COVID at Queens Medical Center. Just in this last year? Yeah, a little bit over a year. And then as far as its use for non-COVID patients, I mean, you know, if you've only got a couple of their Queens, do you have to then ration the care or figure out who's the better candidate? Yeah, so the machines can be used for heart failure or it can be used for lung failure or it can be used for heart and lung failure. And that's just in very general terms. But the machines itself are, it's not a benign or it's not, there's a cost to going on the machine. Yeah, there's some dangers to going on the machine. So the complications that can happen from the machine are bleeding, infection, strokes, limb loss, things like that. And so anybody that is at risk for having any of those things won't necessarily be able to qualify for going on the machines. And then also we we want people to go on the machine and come off and be able to thrive. So if they have some kind of terminal illness or some illness that they're not going to be able to recover from, then they're not a candidate for the machine. So far, I haven't run into a situation where we where we've actually run out of machines it's actually hard to find people that qualify for the machine. And one of the misconceptions is that the machine fixes people, but it actually does not fix people. All it does is just is it, it supports people and it buys them time for them to heal. So that's why like picking the right patient is, is very important because we need to have people that are going to be able to recover. Because the machine, does, like I said, the machine doesn't actually fix you. It just buys you time. So we understand that the machines are are basically here on Oahu. You know, what does that mean for the neighbor island patients? That they're just maybe medevaced here, and then if they meet the criteria and are a good candidate, then they're put on these machines. The adult programs in on Oahu are fairly young. In fact, I was a big part of starting both programs. We're not at a point where we're very mature where we can deploy a team that goes out to the neighbor islands and to be able to kind of put the people on the machine and then bring them over. So we try to communicate with the people on the neighbor islands, let them know that we have the program and educate them in a way where if they have somebody in trouble, they dialogue with us early so that we we know that if they get into trouble, that at least they're safe enough 
their ventilator settings are low enough where they can tolerate transfer to Oahu. And then, and then they may or may not go on ECMO. Kaiser doesn't have a formal program, but Kaiser has done ECMO before. Kaiser Mauna Loa has done ECMO before. So they have a machine and then they support sometimes their, their patients that, that need it. They, they can support people on ECMO. Usually what happens is they have a machine. If they need, if they have a patient that goes on, that needs to go on, then they put them on the machine and then they ask Queens to take over care and they'll transfer the patient to the Queens and we'll, and we'll manage that patient for the long term. I think it was mainly originally bought in order for them to support their open heart program. Sometimes uh, patients, uh, for whatever reason, can't come off a bypass when they have open heart surgery and they need to be supported. If they don't have the machine on site, it's going to be a problem. So they have a machine where if they, it was originally bought so that if, they, if the patient in the OR can come off bypass, it goes on their ECMO machine. And then they sometimes either manage it themselves there or they transfer it to Queens. How long are you normally yeah. on a machine like that? So it all depends on what you, what you go on for. Sometimes if their heart is the thing that failed and they have some myocarditis as a result of like influenza or, or some sort of inflammation of the heart, some patients are as short as a day or two and then they come off. With COVID, we're seeing that they're a little bit longer. So they're in the two to four week range. And that's sort of the national average is, is somewhere in between there. So they're a little bit longer of a run. So runs can be as short as a day. And I've heard of ECMO runs, not not for COVID, but for other things going for over a year. That there, picture, you know, I mean, there's no way that we would be able to do something like that in Hawaii. I think. For us, we can do over a month, probably even more than that. But I think if it's, if it's to that point and their lungs have failed, then we're looking at possibly trying to transport them to the mainland for a long-term run and possibly maybe like a lung lung transplant. In my opinion, it seems like we've saved a few people. But unfortunately, you know, the data is not necessarily there. There's no randomized controlled trials. There's no good randomized controlled trials that has shown that ECMO is actually better than doing conventional ventilation. The way that we use it is sort of like rescue therapy where where if it's at a point where things are so bad on the ventilator where the, the patient looks like they're um, they're not going to survive, and that's sort of where we come in and we try to do ECMO. So we try to do it at, in, at, a, at a late stage, but at a stage where it's late enough where, uh, or it's bad enough where the, the patient's prognosis is very poor, but early enough where we've still think that the lung is recoverable. That was Dr. Eric Itoman, director of Queen's ECMO program. The highly specialized machines are being tapped to treat COVID-19 patients. He says at Queen's alone, the two machines are credited with saving about nine COVID patients. Civil Beats business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us this morning for our reality check as the news of the Safe Access Program sinks in. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So this is the program that you've got to show proof of vaccination or a, a negative test, right? 
Exactly, yes. To get into businesses, um, and it's a wide range of businesses, um, starting September 13th on Oahu, people will have to show uh, proof of vaccination or um, proof of a negative test. Okay, so this is something new for us here, but you just came back from a trip and you actually saw this kind of in action. Yes, I did. Um, as a matter of fact, this wasn't exactly the program, um, but I was in San Francisco in the Bay Area and going to um, a lot of Argentine tango events and <laughs> everything required a uh, proof of vaccination. All the people at these events were vaccinated and um, it it really uh, seemed to work. Um in that case. So it, it was fine. So I imagine, though, you probably felt comfortable because you knew everybody was vaccinated. Oh, yes, for sure. It, and again, this is uh, something where um, you're you know, social dancing with people. So um, it could be very risky. Um, this was before the Delta variant really took off. So this was in, in July. Um, and, you know, the vaccinations are so ubiquitous, uh, ubiquitous in the in the Bay Area that it, it seemed to be pretty easy to get a whole group of people vaccinated in one place. Now, for this one here, this is for Honolulu. And, uh, you know, I know the mayor had his news conference, uh, you know, detailing all this. Oh, what more can you share about how it's supposed to work? Yeah. So the way it's going to work is um, you, you need to show uh, proof of vaccination. It could either be your card. You could have a picture of your card on the phone or, um, you know, the governor's talked about having something set up before too long where you can show the QR code the same way that you do it if you're flying with the Safe Travels program. Um, that That's the idea. Um, it would be administered at these uh, facilities. Um, and these include restaurants, bars, um, all kinds of venues, you know, theater, movie theaters, gyms, uh, really the whole range of entertainment things. It does not apply to retail, though. So grocery stores and uh, shopping and other places wouldn't require it. It doesn't apply also to places where you either uh, take out your food or um, just go in and out like Starbucks or something where you just go in and you're in for a few minutes, pick up your coffee and leave. Um, it doesn't apply to food trucks. Um, there are a number of exceptions um, where it doesn't apply. Yeah. You know, we did see the head of the um, uh, the restaurant association, right, saying, please uh, still support us, you know, come to the takeout window. Um, but, yeah, those vaccinated just have to show proof in order to come in and sit down. Right. And the restaurants, you know, are in a really uh, precarious situation now. They're just coming out of, you know, really starting to recover. Um, we had a lot of tourists over the summer it's starting to taper off, going into the shoulder season, which is fairly normal. Um, Governor Ige, of course, uh, asked visitors not to come here anymore. So that's um, exacerbating or making the, 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 the decline for restaurants even greater. So the restaurants are very concerned that people aren't going to come uh, and eat there because of this this order. You know, the flip side is that, look, most people who are eligible for vaccinations are vaccinated. And uh, the, the restaurants are also kind of cautiously optimistic that those people will come more if they know that everybody that's eating in the restaurant and everybody working in the restaurant 
um, is vaccinated, then it'll make people more comfortable and people will start going to restaurants, maybe who were staying home and, and a bit concerned about going there. And what's the reaction been like uh, to the news of this program? Oh, it's been, there's been quite a lot of comments on our site about it, and they're really all over the place. Some people, again, saying we, we like it. Other people saying we really oppose this. This is uh, overreach by the government. They shouldn't be uh, the government shouldn't be telling businesses uh, what to do when it comes to requiring uh, vaccinations for employees and customers. Um, we did have uh, one representative, Val Okimoto from uh, Mililani. Um, she is the minority leader in the, in the House, and she said, no, this is bad. Um, you know, it's a bad policy, and uh, this is just going to get more people who are unvaccinated gathering together because they're they're not going to be able to get together with people who are vaccinated. Okay, well, we have a, what, a couple of weeks to kind of get used to this idea before they roll it out. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mother Bake Shop in Kailua, committed to using locally produced ingredients, offering artisan organic sourdough breads, pastries, and more. Open Wednesday to Sunday on Instagram and Facebook. Oakland, California recently decided to pull back from a major increase to the police budget. But is that what residents in Oakland's high crime neighborhoods want? How much do activist demands and true community needs align? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dietrich Insurance, working with Hawaii clients to help protect what is important to them now and in the future. More about auto, home, and business insurance at Dietrich, DTRIC.com. Loosening of pandemic restrictions and the increase in visitor arrivals over the last few months has led to overcrowding at many popular parks and beaches across our state. The impacts are being felt by residents on all islands, including Lanai. Tensions are increasing between locals and tourists at one spot in particular, Hulapoi Beach Park. It's unique because while the beach is managed by the state, the park is owned and maintained by Pulama Lanai, a land and resource management company. To get a better understanding of the situation, the conversations Russell Subiono spoke with Hulapo'i Beach Park Council Chair Kelly Maltezo and her father, Butch Gima. He's a member of Lanaians for Sensible Growth. What makes this spot so special? Unlike other islands, Hulapo'i Beach is unique in the sense that it's the only beach on Lanai that has the type of, I guess, view 
and access. You know, for for decades, residents have enjoyed Ulupoi, and you know, since the hotel started in, in the early 90s, just it's just been a slow increase in the amount of non-residents, you know, coming to Lanai and accessing Ulupoi Beach. More recently, and we have data to back it up, there has been a significant increase in day trippers from Maui utilizing Expeditions, Trilogy, Maui Nui, and Paragon boat operators. And there's some other, other ones too, but those are the four primary boat operators that have permits to come into the small boat harbor. It's my understanding that it's also the only beach accessible without a four-wheel drive. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's the only beach accessible by paved road. And, and it's also a marine life conservation district. Okay. So our bay is protected. So we have wonderful, you know, marine life, snorkeling. I think the setup, what makes it so special is just kind of how it's kind of geographically set up in this beautiful bay. And I think we are fortunate that the beach park is privately owned because the upkept of the beach is is amazing. Uh, the beach park is amazing. I mean, we have wonderful amenities. It's always clean, you know, so for, for residents to enjoy whether we're there for the day or, or obviously pre-COVID for camping, it's, it's just clean and sanitary and always kept nice. I have yet to visit Lanai, but I, I'm, I grew up on the Big Island and spent a mm. lot of time on Oahu. Is there a comparable beach on another island that that may give our listeners a sense of just how clean and pristine this beach is. Is, is it comparable to, say, like, McKenna or Waimea? Honestly, I, I can't say just because I, I have not been to a lot of beaches statewide. I mean, I lived on Oahu for about eight years, and I never found a beach or beach park that was upkept the way that Hulapoi is. I'm not sure in terms of, of other islands, and I, I'm sure there's something out there, but yeah, <laughs> I can't okay. really compare. And to Kulama, a nice credit, they're, they're rangers who are there from, <clears throat> I think, six or seven in the morning till about 10 at night. Like Kelly said, really take care of the park. They, they monitor non-resident campers, and so they're, they're constantly policing you know, the beach park you know, and the beach up into the, like the high water mark. You know, one thing I wanted to add regarding day trippers and, and the use of the beach, I think a lot of non-Lanai people would say, oh, your beach is not crowded. I mean, nothing compared to, you know, the neighbor islands. But for Lanai standards, we are noticing how crowded it's, it's getting. Yeah. And we wanted, we wanted to take a very proactive step in in preventing it from getting to the point we don't we don't want to wait till it gets overcrowded like like Kailua and then you know we wouldn't know what what to do so that's why we're we're very methodical in you know dealing with this issue and we're trying to do it from a grassroots community-based effort and then hopefully we can work with Suama and you know on setting something up that works well for our residents that that's we, we are biased towards the residents you know, of, of Lonai in terms of whatever changes that come about. I also know that a public meeting was held on July 29th to discuss limiting non-residents at Hulapoi. I, from what I've read, that was a, a Hulapoi Beach Park Council meeting 
Can you give me a sense of what was shared at that meeting, what the sentiment was, maybe some solutions or some options that were that were discussed? That was our first public hearing that we brought to our community. And really, it was wanting to get an idea and thoughts directly from our community before we look at making any type of proposal. And so kind of what we heard a lot of was this consensus that we want to ensure that the beach and beach park is is always accessible to the Na'i residents. We heard a lot of agreement that we need to restrict or I, I don't like using the word restrict access, but limit, limiting access to non-residents. I, obviously, there's a lot of finer details that would go into that. But I think for the most part, we heard that people want to see limited amount of non-residents at the beach and beach park. And I, I think there is this understanding that Trilogy, who who has the authority to operate at the park, our community is aware of that, and for the most part, support that. You know, Trilogy pays. They they pay Tulama Lanai to bring their guests in. They've been doing this for, gosh, over 30, probably 40 years. They were grandfathered into commercial activity, whereas now the Hulapoi Beach Park rules prohibit commercial activity. So I think our residents are understanding of, of that situation, wanting to see less day guests, wanting to also ensure that if they have non-resident guests, you know, whether it's family or friends visiting, that their family and friends would have access. That's kind of pretty much what I got out of it. Dad, did I miss anything? Well, I think it's it's really important to state that the public hearing was to obtain the residents' input regarding limiting non-resident access to the beach park, not limiting non-resident access to the beach. So we have to make that very clear distinction because by law, we have to provide public access to the beach. What I noticed both in the written and the oral testimony was testifiers talked about, they talked more about why the beach is so special to them and why it's so unique and how they want to preserve the traditional use of that beach. But they did not have specific suggestions or recommendations on how to come up with a policy to to limit non-resident access. So that's the challenge for our council to come up with. I think there were some ideas from some of the testifiers uh, with ideas for like a reservation system, have to pay and have that money go back into the community. So yes, there were some ideas that were brought up, but yeah, not specifically about, you know, a policy or, you know, how to implement that. And, you know, this was the first public hearing that we've done in, in quite some time. And it was a really good start and a really good turnout of community members. I mean, this is going to be something that's going to be ongoing until we can get enough input from our community. And for us as the Hulapoi Beach Park Council, we are looking at the beach park, not the not the beach. Is there anything that you want to share with listeners or people looking to come to Lanai? Is there something that you want to say to them about how they should enjoy your island? I think that's a kind of a two-part question because you have to answer it in, in the context of COVID and answering it if it wasn't COVID specific to, you know, Hulupoi, I can 
I mean, it's, it's a wonderful beach, not crowded. And like Kelly was saying, you have a lot of the amenities, you have kibachis and you have showers. And at the same time, they're not aware of kind of the local style, the local, or my local rules. Just, just in a quick example, if I go down to the beach and I put my stuff on the table and it's it's not like I'm reserving the table, but Lanai's style is when somebody's at the table, you don't come and someone else doesn't come and put their stuff on there. Right. It's, it's recognized that somebody's using the table. And, you know, people coming over from, from Maui or, or whatever, they, they don't know that. And so some locals get pissed about it. I think for me, it's coming here and, and re- respecting, um, being respectful to our, our beach park and our, and our beach and being respectful to our rangers that are enforcing the beach park rules, being respectful to our residents and just in general, just being respectful to our to the land and the amenities. We're so fortunate we get wonderful marine life in our in our bay and you have tourists that are going out and trying to like swim with the dolphins. I mean, we're seeing this, right? Like statewide. But yeah. I, it's, it's anything, it's just being very respectful, maybe doing a little bit of research before you come reading up on on Hulapoi, reading up on on the Manele Bay area and understanding what it what it's like before coming here. And then yeah, just respect that's my thing. That was Kelly Maltezo and Butch Gima. Uh, Maltezo is with the Beach Park Council, and Gima is a member of the group Lanayans for Sensible Growth. We did check with Palama Lanai, the organization which owns and maintains the beach park, to get its perspective on the issue. It issued this statement. Hulapo'i Beach Park is one of Lanai's most popular activities, frequented by residents and visitors alike for its picnic spaces and water activities. Pulama Lanai supports the council's efforts to gather community input about the vision and the usage of the park. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring community-driven pop-up installations across the museum. HonoluluMuseum.org. Hey, this is DJ Mr. Nick inviting you to join me in Generation Listen, an HPR project that connects younger listeners with the station and with each other. Think of it as a welcoming social club with unique and accessibly priced events, engaging conversation, and a diverse group of people. And right now, all of our events are virtual, so they're open to neighbor island people too. Come join us, won't you? Follow us on social at HPR GenListen. Soldiers serving in Afghanistan are set to return home as the United States ends its longest war. But for Afghan refugees fleeing their home country, the next steps aren't as clear. Since 1973, the Pacific Gateway Center has worked to resettle refugees who arrive on our shores. Trina Wong is their deputy director for social and immigration services. She spoke with the conversation's Savannah Harriman-Pote about the process for those seeking asylum in the United States. So we are a partner affiliate in Hawaii to USCRI, which stands for the United States Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. And so the process is the refugees are referred and are vetted 
typically now, I think probably with the Afghan situation, it may it may have been different. But the typical process is that refugees are first uh, they first apply to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Their applications are processed there. Their applications are either accepted or not accepted. For those who are accepted, they are vetted uh, very thoroughly, both biometric as well as background checks. If they um, are accepted as refugees, then they are assigned to various countries. Those who are assigned to the United States are assigned to one of the nine VOLAGs, and they are vetted again. And then once they pass all the security, biometric, medical, background checks, then they are ready to be assigned to resettlement agencies throughout the United States. So it's a pretty involved process. It's a very involved process. And the refugees do undergo very stringent security and vetting processes. And sometimes it can take up to two to four years, maybe more, beginning at the United Nations level. And then it goes through several agency levels. And then their background goes through at least, I think, five interagency databases. You know, refugees do flee from their home country either to escape war or violence or persecution based on a very well-founded fear of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or a particular social group. And many of them do flee without any kind of document, but they come to us with verification and authorization from our partner affiliate. Hmm. If someone has spent two to four years in this liminal phase, when you have the opportunity to work with them, what do you find their first needs are? We usually receive bio data before the immigrants come. First and foremost would be their health. We know what their medical conditions are like beforehand, so we need to set up medical appointments or with the appropriate doctors before they even come. And then, of course, in terms of refugee resettlement, the reception and placement program, which is the federally funded program, and resettlement agencies have to uh, respond to an RFP, a request for proposal, as, um, as a site. And once our site has been approved, then we are responsible for ensuring we have 90 days from the date of arrival to Hawaii to secure, if possible, their self-sufficiency. So the refugees are given direct cash assistance, which they desperately need. Uh, We do provide free arrival core services so that we meet them at the airport. Before they arrive, we check their housing. There's a housing safety checklist to make sure their housing is comfortable, to make sure that there is no family tie, um, that, you know, the apartment rent is taken care of, the lease is signed, uh, there are laundry facilities, we make sure that all the appliances in the housing work, uh, and we have to teach them how to use the uh, appliances, they have appropriate clothing for everyone in the family. I mean, there's a stringent a timetable for everything, like we have to be certain assignments within two days, within three days of arrival, within seven days of arrival. And the detail is as specific as we not only have to receive them at the airport to make sure that they have a very warm welcome and immediate sense of belonging to the community, 
but also that we have to ensure a culturally appropriate meal. So as I think about two or three years ago, we had a Ukrainian refugee who came to resettle in uh, in Hawaii. And so definitely we couldn't, for example, serve him a sushi dinner. We had to ensure that it was culturally appropriate. So that is the detail to which uh, refugee resettlement services must occur. Who actually is responsible for determining whether or not a refugee is becoming self-sufficient within the allotted time frame? Is that your organization? So self-sufficiency, the essence would be whether or not they find gainful employment uh, so that they have an income, um, a steady income that will allow them to provide for their own core services. Because the core services and the public benefits that they are entitled to, they're there, you know, there is a there is a time frame or with with each of these. So, along with the reception and placement, we also administer the match grant program, where uh, we need to ensure that hopefully within 180 days from the date of their arrival, they are gainfully employed. So, um, and we are very proud of the fact that I. uh, of our refugees have acquired gainful employment uh, before 180 days. In fact, I think it's at 120 days. Mm. The other question that came up when you were describing the process is you said that a health screening and ensuring that refugees have access to needed health services is the Mm -hmm. first step before anything else. We have to ask, (laughs) during a pandemic... How does COVID-19 complicate or add an additional factor into that question? Yes, that is such a good question. But, you know, actually, we've not had to resettle any refugees since the outbreak of COVID-19, although I am aware that the Afghan nationals were given their first dose of the COVID-19 at their first relocation stop. And probably given the time it takes to vet, uh, they will probably would have received their second vaccine before they are relocated to their resettlement agencies in the new cities, um, which they will call home. It's highly unlikely that we will resettle any Afghan nationals in Hawaii. I can tell you that on behalf of Pacific Gateway Center since 2002, we have resettled 225 refugees, which does not sound like a high number. And that is because um, since my affiliation with Pacific Gateway Center in 2012, we have been considered an impacted state, which means that due to our high cost of living, any refugee that was referred to Pacific Gateway Center had to have a U.S. tie either some relative or a close family friend or a village village friend who could provide an additional safety net, that really did facilitate the large degree refugee resettlement here because they automatically had housing with their family friend or with a family member. So the majority of the refugees, the 225 since 2002, um, 80% of them were human trafficking victims. 
And, of course, they did not have a family tie. But we became very active in the field of agriculture because these human trafficking victims were victims of labor trafficking in agriculture. And so uh, we were able to um, find housing for them near their farms. So Hawaii is serving this special need in terms of people who need to be resettled currently because of the high cost of living. But I know that Hawaii has been a place for refugees fleeing from conflict, most notably the Vietnam War. And that was also so involved in the founding of the Pacific Gateway Center. What would it take for Hawaii to be prepared to receive and resettle refugees in mass in that type of way once again? You know, the most critical need would be housing. Just for example, with regard to the Afghans, um, we were advised that the family tie definition was restricted to only spouse, parent, or child. Not even a sibling was considered a family tie. So that would really mean that we would really, a desperate need would be housing. And then, of course, um, people power. We certainly would need to hire uh, more case managers to help with the comprehensive social services that would be needed, depending upon the countries that they come from, more capable linguists to provide language access um, in terms of interpretation, like, for example, with the Afghan nationals, we do not have currently enough Arabic speakers to be able to handle perhaps a huge influx of refugees. And then ensuring that we also have enough medical coverage. And I'm not just talking about physical medical coverage, but refugees also sustain a lot of emotional trauma. Ideally, it would be great to find bilingual doctors, but this often isn't the case. So Again, the, the importance of linguists, uh, interpreters, as well as translators to help with documents that need translating to ensure the, the refugee understanding of, of written documents as well. That was Tarina Wong, Deputy Director for Social and Immigration Services at the Pacific Gateway Center. She spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. Uh, Wong tells us that while the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants determined that uh, Hawaii isn't qualified to receive refugees from Afghanistan at this time. She says the Pacific Gateway Center is standing by. Should that change? Well, that winds it up for us on this last day of August. Tomorrow, we continue the conversation about Afghanistan on our segment, The Long View. Did you serve in Afghanistan? What are your thoughts? Share your story by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. 
I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.